Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. Featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Seb Stafford-Bloor of Tifo Football. Now, we can all be diverted by football politics and financial power plays. But on Saturday night, it's the real deal. A Champions League final between two great clubs with great European traditions. Real Madrid, of course, have won the European Cup a record 13 times. Liverpool 6. A seventh title would provide a fitting end to a stellar season. So I suppose the question is, Migs, have they got one more big performance left in them? Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, there was there is maybe a slight danger in that I would argue almost since just before since around the semi-final of year against Villarreal, actually, Liverpool haven't quite put in the type of um, a truly dominant display that we've seen define most of their season. But of course, they've generally got the job done. Now, I think possibly for the first time since then, or even, or even longer, they've got a full week's break. There's a good mood. I was at the uh, LMA Awards on Tuesday night, and Klopp's speeches were I mean, brought the house down, really including getting quite an uh, enjoyable reaction from Alex Ferguson, who clearly has so much time for him. And again, I mean, and one thing, while obviously a lot of that was cop speaking to kind of uh, entertain the room, within it, you could also see, and I, I know this sort of thing has come cliche, but it's true. You, 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 you can see how he generates such a response and great the atmosphere he does because in collecting his own award and the, the Sir Alex Ferguson award, he made sure to name check every single member of his staff right up to his personal assistant and tell a little anecdote about them. So, I mean, there's that inclusive atmosphere. And you get the sense that, I mean, despite what happened on Sunday, there is just the right mindset about Liverpool now. And, yeah, I, I think they've got this big performance in them. And I think it's particularly influential in this final because there's been an element so far. While I know Madrid have been such a great story in getting this far, it still feels like Madrid's run has been as much about the teams they've played and the situations they've been in as Madrid. Whereas against Liverpool, I mean, like we had Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain who have their own 
ghosts with the Champions League. Then you have Chelsea who are going through the uncertainty of a takeover. Whereas Liverpool, like Madrid, are one club who draw on their history in the competition. So in that regard, Madrid lose that advantage. And I think Liverpool have so many strengths. Yeah, I think, I think, they, I think we, we will see potentially one last lift. Would you agree with that, Seb? Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I think as the season's worn on, I think Miguel touched on this, but I think we've seen Liverpool's power within this, you know, certain chapters of games rather than within the, the within a game itself as an entirety. So the only the only question mark I have is if you look back at Rail's run through the Champions League, their progress has been defined by their ability to capitalise in small moments. Obviously, that ridiculous Benzema hat-trick against PSG, the madness against Chelsea, the greater madness against Manchester City. Real Madrid are a kind of team who, it seems to sort of profit off the chaos, profit off lapses in concentration, fatigue, tactical uncertainty, these kind of things. And so that's really the only doubt. I think if you line those teams up against each other, I could certainly make an argument for Real Madrid. I could certainly pinpoint some individual issues and some battles and some superiorities they might have, and I'm sure we'll get to that. But I don't think there's an argument that Liverpool aren't the stronger side and player for player aren't the better one. And I also think that... Um, I think what's really interesting, and Mig's touched on it with, with Jurgen Klopp, is that you've got two managers going head-to-head at the end of the season when two teams are running on fumes, but who have two very, very different different motivational styles. You know, there's obviously some clear contrast between Carlo Ancelotti and Jurgen Klopp in the way that they kind of galvanise their players, the way they react to individual footballers, and the way that they form bonds with them. That's very interesting because it's almost kind of a face-off in um, emotional ideology, isn't it? So that's really interesting too. But yeah, no, I... Liverpool have never had a, had a... When Liverpool have needed a performance, and I think this is true for much of the Klopp era, when they've needed a moment, when they needed a something, when they've needed a reaction, Klopp has always been able to reach down inside his squad and find it from somewhere. And I expect pretty much the same on Saturday, I think. Mm, yeah, I think if you look at them, both managers, I think the one thing that unites them is, is that emotional intelligence, which I think is probably you know, one of the most definable aspects of modern of the modern game just want to take you back if i could mix to what you know that that tuesday night the the lma dinner you know i love the quote that you used from sir alex ferguson about advising Klopp to go to a club with history <laughs> you know i should have told him to go to scunthorpe united <laughs> the thing that struck me about that one was the respect that you spoke about earlier but also I think we can really make valid comparisons between the two, can't we? Oh, yeah, completely. And actually, even if you, if you want to go further, I, I, I was thinking about this on Tuesday night, especially now that Klopp is obviously kind of undisputably one of the best managers in the world, maybe the best, but you, can, you know, that's a, a hair-splitting argument. But let's not forget, the first time these two teams met in a final, yeah, Real Madrid and Liverpool, or sorry, a final in, in this era, given this is the third time they've met in an overall. But in 2018, Klopp was basically still considered, yes, a good manager, but <laughs> making no bonds, but he was considered a loser. So many so many second places. It, there are at least some parallels with how, okay, again, different world, different environment, but more so the, the perception. Where with, with Ferguson's first four years at Manchester United, where he hadn't won a trophy, and an initial second place finish in his first full season gave way to kind of a bad drop off, and and basically it was it was as if or it was considered that 
his achievements at Aberdeen, a little like Cop's achievements at Dortmund at that time, were kind of dismissed a bit. And kind of, oh, that doesn't really matter here where it's real. Only to, but what was actually happening, of course, where they're, they're putting together these supersized in their own image that would eventually go on these remarkable remarkable runs. Again, there aren't complete parallels, different eras, isn't it? it's a 30-year gap. But yeah, absolutely. And, and, and of course, then we are talking about uh, two of the real greats in the history of the game, particularly given that Klopp, if he wins on Saturday, it will be his, um, his second Champions League. Which 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 really puts him up on that list. I and mean, again, now this is this is said about pretty much every manager who gets to the second. But I suppose the fact that it's Carlo Ancelotti and Zidane who are still still the only one, and, Pey- and Bob Paisley, of course, still the only ones on three shows how difficult it actually is. But uh, really, with Klopp, you wouldn't rule out another and joining that club. But then, of course, Ancelotti might uh, has his own kind of date with history on Saturday night as well. He can he, when he can win his fourth. Mm. Sure, yeah, you know, I, I think one of the the major comparisons said would be that they both both Fergie and Klopp took on the burden of of history yeah you know both at United and Liverpool so Seb when we look at at Klopp or either both of those managers they're of their eras what about their personality types is someone like Klopp probably better suited to this 24-7 image conscious social media driven world that football exists in now yeah i, I think i tend to agree with that I, I think i'd add something else in there in which which is that club is very comfortable talking about social issues i think a couple of times this season in the years previous we've had situations where real world real significance matters have been raised in press conferences and I suppose the um, the archetype is is of the football manager who's a little bit uncomfortable and says things like, "I oh, yeah, I'm just here to talk about goals and tackles and tactics and that kind of stuff, and leave me alone." And you know, I don't read the front of the newspaper. And to a, to an extent, I get that because it's really easy to slip up in that environment and to be misinterpreted or willfully misinterpreted. Sometimes, Klopp is very at ease. Klopp is very at ease, and he's also very comfortable in his own skin because you you see someone who is very happy to speak his mind. He's very happy to be sincere, and doesn't kind of I think sometimes when you when you hear managers talk about real world issues when they do express themselves they do it in the way that all of modern football does about pretty much anything they're worried about saying too much they're worried about being a little bit too forthright and so they kind of they stay well within the margins so to speak with Klopp he's very straightforward this is what I think about this and invariably when you hear him speak about things like that you end up nodding along and agreeing and and he just comes across a very decent person and I I wonder whether, and it's very difficult to speak for a modern professional footballer. Unfortunately, I am nearly 40, so it's not, <laughs> not my generation anymore, sadly. Um, but Looking if you were young... the end, my end of the telescope, mate. <laughs> that, that did make me feel better, mate. Thank you very much. Um, so if I was a young player now and I was growing up in this world, I would respond very well to somebody like that who didn't treat football as a bubble, who didn't he didn't think that it was a like a vacuum in which nothing else in the world matters. You get someone that someone who seems very worldly, I think, and someone who has a, a proper social conscience. And I, I think that's very important. Like I, I think obviously there's a lot more to constructing and motivating a football team than that, but it really, really helps. It's a very important starting point. Mm. Yeah, inevitably, I suppose a, a lot of Manchester City fans were affronted that that Klopp won the LMA. Manager of the Year award, Miggs, was that the usual 
performative nonsense or did it have some validity given that Pep Guardiola has won 10 titles in his 13 seasons um, as a manager? Yeah, but I suppose the, the LMA award, and it, it's not about your recent history, it's about the season. And the issue for City there, and this is something that has been touched upon all season, and that Guardiola has started to reflect himself, is that, or, or really the lack of appreciation, is that when you're at Manchester City, basically winning the league is a par performance. You should be winning the league. And this shouldn't be overlooked in all this. I mean, some of it is, of course, just suppose the way people react to these things. But ultimately, an award like the LMA, it's not, it's not, it's not an award for winning the league. That, that's, that's the, that's the trophy. That's your medal. It's, it's an award that wreck. I mean, what a manager of the year award should really be about is how well anyone has done with their given resources and whether they've overperformed or not. And in that regard, you wouldn't actually say Guardiola has necessarily overperformed this season because again, they should be finishing top. Had he added a Champions League to that, then yes, of course it would would, would have overperformed. But that's the, that, I mean, that's the price of being in a club like City. And yes, Klopp himself is at a super club. And obviously where the resources are, I mean, it is an issue of scale. I mean, it, it, it obviously so, so far beyond Thomas Frank's Brentford, who would have been a vote for me for manager of the year. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's about scale. Klopp is at a super club, yes. But Liverpool are just not as wealthy as a state project in Manchester City. So to keep pace with them in the way they've done... And not just keep pace, because the thing about this sort of thing is, you, 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 usually when, when clubs are competing with someone of better resources, there has to be compromises somewhere. So like Pochettino, again, Spurs are, are sorry, Liverpool are a wealthier club than Liverpool. But one way that Pochettino had got around that was basically, he just rolled off the two domestic clubs. He, like, he, he, just, he, he didn't play the same strength of 11 in, in them. So he could, he could focus everything on the league and Champions League that he felt mattered more than anything. Whereas Klopp now, we're in a season where despite where you, you think he'd have to make compromises, we could see him win every single domestic cup and go within a point, or sorry, every, every single cup potentially, and go within a point of City in the league, which is an immense achievement. Now, I suppose it is maybe the slight danger of when the award arrives and that that will feel very different if he wins the Champions League or if he doesn't. But if he wins it, certainly, it does kind of um, <laughs> bel- uh, belatedly, or, or, or sorry, um, after the fact, make the uh, the award on Tuesday night look better. But it was interesting, actually, while there was unanimous applause in the room for Klopp, clearly well appreciated, there was a smattering of booze when, when Guardiola's name was read out for the nomination. I can't think where that came from. <laughs> Carlo Incholotti said, seeking to become the first manager to win the Champions League four times. You know, his breadth of achievement is is amazing, winner, winner of all five big leagues. It's quite remarkable to think that not so long ago, he was Klopp's other half on Merseyside, isn't it? Yes, it seems like a dream, doesn't it? It seems like Mm -hmm. something that we all imagined. One of the things that occurred to me this week about Colo Ancelotti, and I suppose it was in light of the Kylian Mbappe news, is that I I still think the work he's done at Real Madrid this season is kind of underappreciated because you need to remember what he inherited. Now, obviously, Real Madrid only found out that Kylian Mbappe wasn't coming to Spain last weekend but a lot of their organizational energy and resources have been focused towards that moment for a long time to the point where they have weakened themselves in expectation that he would join 
think about some of the, the sales over the last couple of years, but, you know, allowing someone like Rafa Varane to leave the club to free up wage space. I believe that at the beginning of the season, Ancelotti was told that his wage bill would be trimmed so that they could afford Kylian Mbappe at the end of the year, which I know it's not like this at a club like Real Madrid, but it's kind of like, right, well, we're writing this off, aren't we? So just do your best. And then in a year's time, you'll have Mbappe and you can go and win everything. And the guy wins La Liga very, very comfortably. I know Barcelona had a down year and Atletico Madrid were a little bit of a, um, a mixed bag this year, but look at the clubs that he's knocked out in the Champions League. It's an amazing achievement. And it's also... I look at some of those players at Real Madrid and see some of the kind of the individual improvements. Vinicius will probably talk about a little bit more and his improvements probably been going for, I'd say maybe about 18 months where you've seen him go from being a very, very promising player to a really excellent one. But look at someone like Rodrigo this year. Rodrigo, obviously highly talented when he came in, had a couple of moments in the Champions League which caught people's attention. Under Angelotti, he's become a difference maker which is really, really interesting. Militao, I think, has had his better season, uh, a, a better season under Angelotti. I think the midfield is interesting. I think what he's done with Fede Valverde is, is it's shown a side of, of the player that I didn't realise existed because he's a bit more box-to-box, a bit more vertical than, than previously. It's an amazing body of work. And actually, the Everton thing, and I don't mean any disrespect when I say this, although, you know, I'm sure the internet has been, is always very forgiving, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I don't mean any disrespect, but it's like, it's very strange that someone like that was at Everton, given where Everton exists within the future. Not this season and not the calamities and all the, the nonsense that took place, but typically, like, you, you know, sort of uh, between the eighth and sixth place in the Premier League. And you've got someone like this managing there. It's very, very strange. I'll say Everton isn't a very large club, but it, it's just, in the contemporary sense, it was a little bit incongruous. But Ancelotti has done amazing things. And I think... Um, I think one of the problems for him is is in the internet age, I think it's very easy to assess coaches and assess coaching quality by the kind of the the bite-sized nuggets which make it out onto social media. So it's like, oh, look at him. He's, he's raised his eyebrow there. That makes a great coach. Or his team has scored a goal and all he's done there is blow on his hot cup of coffee or hot cup of tea. And, and you think, well, okay, it's fun. Yeah. But it kind of diminishes the man. There's a gravity to Colin Ancelotti. I'd recommend anyone read his book, actually. Um, it's, it's very, very good. interesting. It's very good. Very yeah. interesting. And it's, um, you understand a little bit more than, I think, kind of one of the narratives around him is, oh, he does well because players like him. Yeah, okay, they do. But there's a lot more substance to it than that. And I think it's a great thing. Like, I, I, I really have a horse in the race, but I... I think whatever happens on Saturday, whichever manager wins, I think it's a great story. Ancelotti winning four European Cups. It's ridiculous. It's an amazing achievement. And um, it's, it's, I hope that provides a little bit of, yeah, a layer of gravitas to someone that has possibly just been dismissed a little bit too much sometimes as everybody's mate, uh, which I think is a little bit of a disservice. I'm going to offer a little bit of edge to that. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. First, I was thinking about Angelotti, and like, I get, yes, I mean, well, Mark Samuel is, he's very obviously a, a very good man. And in a world where the demands of football management are such, <laughs> the most charitable description of this is a lot of top managers have to be quite spiky people and <laughs> unpleasant in a lot of circumstances or circumstances that don't go away. Where Ancelotti's never had that. Now, that's arguably one reason, though, why. He is not, I, I, and I, I, I should couch this just before that there will be an explanation just because it's possibly a remarkable thing to say when someone's on the brink of winning four Champions Leagues. But it's why he's not 
an absolutely top manager, at least in the modern game. I mean, there's a reason he was at Everton, uh, because he couldn't really get top jobs anymore. There was a reason he went back to Madrid, because this is a club, as the Mbappe deal shows, and as the run to the Champions League in its own way, or rather the perception of it shows, in that this is essentially, it, it, the, the biggest club in European history was an underdog story, right down to the fact that they, pre, they appropriated an underdog phrase in Spain, which is, si se puede, yes we can. They're a club in decline. And, and there, is, there is a potential, as the Mbappe deal emphasised, that this run could end up being similar, coincidentally enough, to AC Milan 2007, the last hurrah of an old era because the world is changing around this club. And, that, and that's why Ancelotti was there, because they couldn't get one of the kind of super coaches now. And, and it's always been the interesting thing with Ancelotti in this superb Champions League record is offset by what is actually, he, he, even though, again, we have this stat that he, he's, uh, he's the first manager to win all five major European titles, but they're actually the only five titles of his career. And that's despite spending, what, at least 15 to 19 years, you can get, I suppose, a few are down to, to perception, and always the, I mean, this is similar to what we're saying about Pep Guardiola here, but are always the best resourced best run or biggest club in the country he's been in at that time. If we're going from the Guardiola perspective earlier, it's almost performing under par. And there is an argument that comes down to the fact that in modern leagues, you need that intensity that Ancelotti doesn't, doesn't really have. I mean, like at Bayern Munich, they were shocked at the drop-off in coaching and, tra- and training after having experienced Guardiola. Now, that's obviously natural, I suppose, given Guardiola's intensity, but, it, but it's relevant to this discussion. But, of course, the flip side of all that is, and as we've seen in the Champions League record, is that in games, in these big games and in moments, as uh, Seb alluded to there, uh, Ancelotti is, is better than anyone at just knowing that he's got that emotional intelligence that a lot of these more intense managers may be done. That, that's really what elevates his career. And maybe it, it's why... He has this slightly contradictory record, but yeah, but certainly does he, like yeah, he's in such an interesting position as well going into this this Champions League final. Let's not forget, <laughs> it, had, had it not been for the for the the win against Paris Saint Germain, even right up to the semi final, there was talk that if they lost the semi final badly, the second leg, and despite winning the title, Florentino Perez was going to sack Ancelotti. Now again, that's that's Perez. But it does show that like they, they, they want they ultimately want to bring in a, mo- a modern super coach in that regard. Well, we are dealing, aren't we, Migs, with someone who's using the cumulative experience of, of 45 years in the game. Now, it's always struck me that his trust in his players and his staff was probably the biggest compliment you can pay to him and probably his best asset. But there's one thing struck me, and you know, you talked about the contradictions of the man. In the Real Madrid Open Day on Tuesday, he spoke about issues before big games, accelerated heart rate, private moments of negativity and doubt, which is obviously an indication or another indication of the realities of management. Did that admission, which basically goes against the whole trademark image of coolness under pressure did that surprise you yeah a, a little bit inside. and again it's kind of the typical frankness and genuine nature he speaks about these things 
And but I suppose what what what, what points to his his um his record and his supreme ability to manage these occasions is how he responds to them himself. I mean, there's a, there's a story that we had during the season, which was just before um, Benzema's hat trick against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, possibly his performance of the campaign. Although it's, I mean, it's one of many. Benzema actually turned up to the stadium without his accreditation, and there was there was a brief, bizarre point where it looked like Benzema mightn't be let in. But of course, they managed to get in. But <laughs> he was he, he he was naturally very aggravated and very animated. Ancelotti just took had an immediate instinct for taking the thing out of it by just kind of joking to him, we're going to play the kit man instead, you can sit this one out. And even and then Benzema immediately started laughing. And again, I suppose it's, uh, yeah, it, 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 I mean, given the way he spoke on Tuesday, it's that thing of being able to mask what he might internally be feeling and radiate the best possible mood for the for his players for the, for these big games. Yeah, I think also, and, and you alluded to to it earlier, Seb, what he's quietly doing is restocking and remodelling that Madrid team. Let's look at the specific, the, some of the specific players. You know, you mentioned, you know, two of them earlier. You know, Vinicius and Rodrigo. Also, Camavinga. You know, the, the prospect of him having being in the same midfield next season as as Chumeni, who seems likely to prefer Madrid to Liverpool, but PSG are having a sniff, so who knows what's going to go on there. But I suppose my basic point is that even in a season like this, he is stocking up for tomorrow, isn't he? It's not just about today. 100%. Camavinga is a mighty talent. I think, obviously, we knew his name. I saw a little bit of him playing when he was playing in Liga, but I don't think... Anybody really expected his adaption. I don't think anybody expected his adaption to involve so many crucial moments in big games. Let's put it that way, because he's been a very important piece in the Champions League. I, I agree wholeheartedly, Mike, with the restocking and, and kind of um, the, the kind of the, I, I call it almost a gentle evolution away from, like, if you think about how long that midfield was together, the midfield, the, you know, the Modric, Kroos, Casemiro midfield, how that's evolving, how the forward line has changed. The only question mark I have is, in the aftermath of Mbappe, Jimeni is expected to come in, yes, but if Florentino Perez needs a political win because obviously Mbappe not joining is a huge political disappointment, which comes off the back of Super League, a couple of disappointing seasons, some fairly media, no, some fairly media, meager transfer recruitment. Not bad, just not attention-seeking in the way that it used to be under Perez. And so you just wonder within that context whether there's a big, shiny spanner to come into the works somewhere, a player that you know is in Congress who doesn't fit, who disrupts what's happening. I, I don't know. It just, in this kind of situation with characters like that, they don't tend to respond that positively to having their ego bruised because this is a very public humiliation. Fortunately, uh, Javier Tebas has deflected some of, the, <laughs> some of the attention away from that. But that was, that was uh, one of the great hissy fits of our time, wasn't it? It was. It was kind of magnificent in a way. Yes, you know, threatening to take PSG to the Hague or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I just wonder. I, I, I think yeah, a little bit of a hesitant but a curious uh, eye over the um, over the, the activity at Real Madrid this summer. I think probably. Yeah. Well, as as you say, the stakes have certainly been raised by Mbappe's rejection. I suppose that points up, doesn't it? Migs, the pressure of playing for such a politically febrile club, you know, you, you only need to look at the victims or 
you know, victims of its kind. You know, Eden Hazard has had three wasted seasons. You know, is there also any sense of sadness that it looks like Gareth Bale is unlikely even to make the bench on Saturday, which is a pretty sad way to go out? A little bit. And it's always impossible to square this situation that Bale is in at Madrid where to look at his name so frequently absent, you think, this guy's past it. You know, like he's just running out his contract. Then you watch him for Wales. And we're still talking talking about one of the most devastating players in international football. <laughs> the performance against Austria was something else. So it, it is, but then of course it, that's down to something a lot bigger than that than Bale's form and uh, and points to the political nature of a club like this. But then of course uh, one of the more interesting things about this, it's something that may have to change about Madrid that the Mbappe situation emphasized, and that I mean, and, he, and he, even even the Hazard signing now feels like. I mean, it was pre-pandemic. It was it was the last summer before the pandemic, actually. But it feels like a transfer from a different world in that Madrid flexing their muscles against one of the one of the petrol clubs. Even like Chelsea's ownership has obviously changed now. But in 2019, it was kind of, you know, still Abramovich a year before he's going to spend 200 million. And they basically strong-armed Chelsea out of one of their one of their better players, whatever has happened since with, with, with uh, Hazard. Whereas now... Madrid have to get used to a new reality and they can't really look to signing the world's top stars anymore because they just don't have that money. They have to look to, to sign the next best thing, which is pretty much what they've been trying to do. And it's even a reflection of that, that they, that they tried to do that with Mbappe. They were, they were going to sign him on a free contract. Let's look at the, the game in the round, if we could, please, Seb, the final in the round. Where do you think Liverpool can lose this game? I think we touched on it at the beginning, Mike. I think Madrid profit in the chaos. I think if Liverpool end up losing this game, I think what will end up happening is that we will be talking in the aftermath about a period of about 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, where something has happened, something that doesn't necessarily fit the overall pattern of the game. There are some tactical concerns. I think... Um, I mean, be careful how I how I frame this because I don't believe it's kind of an individual individual failing. But I think Vinicius versus the the kind of the channel, the Liverpool right hand channel, and I don't think of that as a you know oh I you know Trent Alexander Arnold is an inferior defender. I don't think he is. I think some of the issues that he encounters are a quirk of Liverpool's system and are a facet of his role. Like he is not a fullback. It's just the terminology around his position doesn't exist properly, really. It hasn't, hasn't been invented, I guess. But there is space behind him because that's what Liverpool concede and their centre-backs are good enough to allow that. When you add someone like Vinicius into that, it worries me a little bit because I think one of the, the developments, yes, there's been a, a greater tangible output um, to his game over the last 18 months, two years. I think he's also a more direct player. I think he plays in straighter lines than he used to before, I think. His, I never, I always thought of him as a quick player. I, I think it's only really this season that I've realised just how devastatingly rapid he can be, and that's a problem. Like there will be a counter-attacking issue. I, we're recording this on a on a Thursday. I'm still not entirely sure whether Thiago is going to play. I think first of all, if he doesn't play, I think it's a great shame because he's one of the world's best footballers. One of the, I, I think one of the the passes that I enjoy watching the most in the game today. This is just a real artistry and craft of the way he uses the ball. I think that changes the that, the... that pass against Wolves, by the way, was amazing, wasn't it? But then 
I, I think I could add like three or four of his passes into that into that bracket, Mike. I think I think what I enjoy about him the most is just the way he kicks footballs. <laughs> like we, yeah, we, we, yeah. we 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 kind of like we get lost in what every pass means and like you know how many how many defenders it takes out and you know angles and all that kind of stuff but like professional footballers kick footballs in very unique ways like they, you, they sound different if you're on the training pitch thank you yeah, yeah. when yeah. you're in the stadium and if you get to a stadium early and you're watching a warm-up and the crowd isn't in and it's a little bit echoey go and stand as close as you can uh, as to as close as you can to the pitch mm, and just yeah. watch because it's um and tiago is a great example of that because it's a it's so precise it's like watching somebody it's like he 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 hits the sw- the sweet spot of the ball every single time and the angle of his foot and watch where he looks when he's passing it, it's uh, he is it's the cliche so apologies for that but he's someone who if he was just kicking balls around on a training pitch by himself in the middle of nowhere you'd probably go and watch that too and probably pay to do so and so that's a real shame so him him been missing alters the entire tone of that midfield. I think Liverpool have the players to compensate for that. It's just that he is the best of them, the one I enjoy watching the most. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think, um, yeah, that Vinicius matchup is a little difficult. Also, I'd say, and um, it's going to come off a little bit, like a little bit of a criticism, but there've been a few rickets in Andy Robertson's game over the last couple of weeks. A few kind of positional misnomers that have occurred. I don't know the tactical explanation for that i don't even know if it's fair to attribute them to kind of individual error that might be doing him a disservice but i've seen some trouble in that area and so when you add in rodrigo or you add in a couple of the players that real can use in that area so like valverde has been used there at different times angelotti has a wealth of uh has a wealth of talent to come off the bench and to kind of inject into the game for sort of 15 20 minutes at the end if he needs to so a little bit of trouble around liverpool's fullbacks but that's kind of as a as a, a symptom of the way they play, I guess. Mm. What about the midfield balance and battle, Migs? You know, again, it will be obviously a, a, a huge creative blow if Thiago doesn't make it. But you know, when you look at you know the let's call it the Modric cross axis, that can win any game, can't it? Uh, for a time, although it's it is actually interesting throughout the season, and particularly. In that um, in that last Champions League game against Manchester City, that Ancelotti hasn't been re- afraid to remove either of them. And again, I suppose this is his instinct for the run of these games and what's needed. But I think it also speaks to maybe the nature of the players in the midfield as well. I mean that you know on the face of it, if you take the first 11s, this this could really be or this midfield battle could be something where it's basically the kind of poise and control of Modric and Cruz in particular, with Casemiro behind him. Well, Casemiro doesn't have the legs he used to against, in most cases, with, with Thiago the exception, but it'd be all the more interesting maybe if he doesn't start in this regard, the pure running of Liverpool's midfield. Now, again, Klopp is, Klopp is evolving that, but but it could be a game then, even more so than they've played so far, so far, where Ancelotti very much has a need to eventually bring on Camavinga or, or, or just to change the um, the dynamic of his side because there is at least the possibility that Modric and Cruz, or, or that, sorry, more so that modern Madrid, starting Madrid midfield as a whole, mightn't be able to keep up with Liverpool in the middle. So it, it, I think it's just an ed- another kind of element of this game that will elevate it, but also points to kind of loads of little clashes between two sides and how they're almost opposites in that way. 
Yeah. So I asked you where Liverpool could lose it, Seb. Where can they win it? <laughs> That's a longer answer, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, uh, obviously, they, the obvious places are at, at the feet of like, Hamid Salah and uh, Sadio Mane. I think one of the interesting things actually is um, the evolution and the change in Liverpool's attacking dynamics because I think they're a lot less predictable. It sounds like a pejorative term, but they've changed. Like I, I think now when you face Liverpool, you don't necessarily know, you don't understand the threat uh, as much as you used to. A lot of teams understood the threat and were completely incapable of dealing with it and nullifying it, I, I admit. But now I think you still have Salah playing some of the best footballer of, football of his career, but you have... So like Mane inhabiting slightly different areas of the pitch, like he's he's become a little bit more centre-based. There's a little bit more, um, dare I say, number 10-ish quality to him sometimes. I think Diaz is a fascinating addition to that side because I think we covered before when I've been on, we talked about how quickly he adjusted. Very true. But also I think there's something that he brings to this side, which is that like he is able to... One of the interesting things about him is he's able to compensate for Manny moving inside. So if you shift Manny into a central area and play Diaz off the left, then you're kind of replicating a lot of those abilities. You're not losing anything from that area by shifting Manny. And also, it's a very basic point, but if you look at the way those attackers match up individually with any defenders, well, what's the answer to them? Like well, sometimes when you face teams, you think, right, well, if I'm going to face. Meza Ozil, I'm going to give him a bit of a kicking. I'm going to keep him on his right foot. You know, I'm going to keep him away from the um, penalty area, but I'm also going to make sure that when he drops, I don't get sucked away from the defensive line, that kind of stuff. With Liverpool, I think one of the the, the one of the, the um, most admirable things, uh, admirable qualities that, that the club has created is there are no real answers to them. Like, yes, they're going to leave themselves open to a counterattack. And like teams who have that capability, teams like I don't know, Tottenham in the past, have shown that they can hurt Liverpool. At the same time, there aren't many answers to them defensively. You can sit deep and hope for the best and say, right, well, OK, Mohamed Salah, Thiago Alcantara, Sadio Mane, you can shoot from 25 yards. But at the same time, all of those players can find the top corner. <laughs> so that's not a great strategy. So they can win it everywhere. And, and that's really the kind of... That's the measure of them as a side. There's not a single thing that Real have to stop. It's like five or six different things. And as a matchup, that's impossible. Like beating Liverpool, you need to have luck to do it. And you need to play at the very, very top of your game. And there aren't many sides, not even now in the in the kind of contemporary game, in history, you can say that. Mm. What did you make, um, mix of Mo Salah's comments at... Uh, Liverpool's open day on Wednesday, where you know he said, "Look, I'm going to be here next season because you know, the the obvious and inevitable links to Real Madrid's rebuild, you know, in the in the aftermath of Mbappe's decision, is that a pretty clever move by Salah and his people? Because essentially, what he's going to do is run down his contract, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely, and and, and very much kind of a political move as well. Actually, a political statement that it, it gives him an out either way. If, if he agrees to a new deal, well, you know, he, he hasn't said he's leaving. There's also why, more interesting, I thought, was Sadio Mane's answer, where he basically, he refused to comment on his future at all and said he'll do so after the final. Uh, that was remarkable. Uh, and I suppose some, some of this stuff is actually, there's, a more, there's an even, I mean, usually these players comment on their future in this way and kind of the endless fixation on the future or, or, or on transfers ahead of games of historic importance. Is a little bit tedious, but in this, it's actually directly relevant because 
the fallout from the Mbappe transfer has obviously left Madrid scrambling for other options. And there has been some expectation from within Liverpool that, well, <laughs> what, are the, what are the bets on... Uh, in the days we look to the final, we see a, a few well-timed or kind of our conspicuously timed marca or ass front pages uh, essentially announcing Madrid's interest or attempted negotiations with two of Liverpool's stars. And that's surely something that's going to happen in, in the next two days. But yeah, yeah, I suppose with, with Salah, he gives himself an out, but of course confirms he'll be there. With Mane, well, 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 let's see what happens next. But I suppose that the the uh, the genius of Klopp at Liverpool is that is that he almost solves these problems before they become a problem because they're all they're already on to the next signing. So already, if it's Mane that goes in the summer, well, they've already got his ready-made replacement in uh, in Luis Diaz. Yeah, I suppose it points up the fact that players are becoming increasingly cute in the way that they administer their political and financial power. That then leads us into, Seb, the broader aspects of this final and whether or not it's actually going to be the last of its era. And by that, I mean, you know, if you look at it, Real Madrid fading aristocrats, they're still printing their own money to buy players, but, you know, they have a, they have a ceiling. You've got Liverpool, which is a brilliantly run modern club, you know, analytically sound, the the breadth of their staffing and the intelligence of their staffing is terrific on and off the pitch. Yet, strange as it may seem, these clubs are almost out of their time, aren't they? Because we are entering, or we may already be, in the era of state-sponsored football. Yeah, yeah. It's all very depressing, I think, because... And I've reflected on this quite a lot over the past few months, just because I feel like drop by drop, sort of the aspirations going out of the game. I think if you look at sort of the business practices of some of the teams at the top of the food chain, some of the teams that are financed by Petro States and oligarchs, I, I think the the aim is to take the element of competition out of the sport. It's not to succeed. It's not to build a project and it's not to construct something out of marginal gains and clever recruitment and good signings and all the things that we traditionally associate with excellence it's to ensure that nobody is able to actually compete with the level of resources uh, i was having a conversation on social media the other day with somebody it's about an unrelated matter but it applies here and that i think one of the problems now in the game is that it doesn't matter when you make mistakes like at the Paris Saint-Germain season, I think, you know, they may have won the French title, but it, it is a disaster and it's had a several really low, low points. I mean, their own players have been booed at the Parc de Prince. The Champions League, well, it's become an annual event, hasn't it? You know, where the world laughs at, at uh, Paris Saint-Germain as they trip themselves over in the, in the in the Champions League yet again. And yet their season began with one of the most decadent transfer windows the world has ever seen. It's all gone wrong and you'd think ordinarily, goodness, if you sign Leo Messi and Sergio Ramos and Donnarumma and you, you already have the existing wage bill that you have and then you renew Kylian Mbappe, uh, you know, somewhere else, surely at some point you're going to have to compromise somewhere. There's going to have to be a kind of a, a yin to that yang and a, a sort of, right, well, you know, this guy's going to have to go and it just doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, does it? It's not like um, the normal rules of football don't apply and so there's never the perception of any kind of weakness or there's no perception that as a team not in that bracket you can take advantage of something somewhere. And that's very dangerous. And I think it's it affects the way that I personally look at the game 
because it leaves me, you know, looking forward into the next five or 10 years with a massive sense of, oh, what is actually the point of any of this? Because it's all going to end very, very predictably. And I don't mind that my own team doesn't win anything. I don't, I don't really have a problem with that. I mind that a world is being created in which it is actually impossible, that it's not about my my own team's, you know, capacity to find disaster and to do stupid stuff in the latter stages of competition. They, they've taken spursiness away from me, if that makes sense. And it's very troubling. And I can see a period of time in the future where I'm just not that interested in football, which I think there's an even now, obviously there are, are, are so many issues with this era. Now, let's not forget that the Paramount, among everything, had, has basically, should basically be about the political use of the game to, I mean, the, the, phrase, the phrase is now sports washing, states responsible for essentially denial of human rights. But one of many other less important negative effects, but still important in their own way, it's something I've noticed in the last few weeks, even in previous seasons, Whereas because, say specifically in the case of City here, and really they, 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 they should be similar in France, and it's why the, the apathy in France towards this, and even the state getting involved in, in say, the Mbappe deal, well, not the state, but even the, Macron and Sarkozy getting involved in the, in, the, in the Mbappe deal is all the more remarkable. But it's that Manchester City have so much money to the point that, as we said earlier, them winning the title is pretty much a par, that it's become just an acceptable outcome. Now, what I've noticed among fans of other clubs, and certainly some of the discussion on social media, all of that, is that it means in any sort of race, supporters of other clubs want City to do well because to them, their title doesn't really have emotional meaning. Whereas obviously, if, say, for United fans or Everton fans, Liverpool winning it would. For, say, Mm. Spurs against City in the Champions League in 2019... Arsenal fans would have been def- desperate for City to win, just just because it would have been Spurs. So they're kind of they've become almost this useful patsy to prevent teams you are emotionally invested in, if for the negative, to not win anything. But that but but that means then that so uh, football is the most just by, just by definition, but the amount of people that love it is the most emotionally moving sport in the world. We shouldn't really be in a situation where the outcome of a major competitions produces or produces this where there's not much emotional reaction and it is connected to this financial superiority i i for me that's the game drifting into quite an ominous place and and again typically in the way these things go a place where without people in charge really realizing it potentially realizing the dangers of all this too late right down to the fact that the premier league just waved through the newcastle takeover and yeah, okay, one, one response to that that you always hear is that you need these takeovers now to compete. Now, that's actually true, but again, that's not a good thing. And that means we should be addressing issues like financial disparity in football. That's something that, that's something that the bodies in charge of football, out of the UEFA, that, that's what they should be really tackling. That's what they should be looking at. But they keep sidestepping these issues, as we can see with the, with the new Champions League reforms. But if that creates a world where the, the Premier League ends up being... Abu Dhabi's Manchester City against against Saudi Arabia's Newcastle United. That's absolutely grotesque. I mean, fo- football, as, you, as, as, you've, as you've said there, Seb, I mean, football is really, should, give, given its social meaning above anything else, it really shouldn't just be a plaything for these sort of states. That, that, that to me is, uh, 
it's it, it, it's a, it's a really ominous place toward that the game is going to but 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 the, but that's where we are and then i mean if you want to look at france it makes it all the more i mean the, the french league is basically just being gutted and yet even though it's being gutted and it's becoming anti-sport we have this situation where some of the some of the leading politicians in france are basically lobbying because that's what it is lobbying from from for, for, for more PSG power by making sure that Kylian Mbappe stays in the country and making these overtures to him. And it's one thing that's always struck me about, about French football, now, the complete apathy towards what Paris Saint-Germain are. Now, I suppose some of it is connected to the fact that, you know, it, it does make the, the league glamorous, but then I'd rather have a competitive league than a glamorous league, something that's entertaining to watch. And then, But then I suppose maybe we, we can't get too over the top about that, given it's something it very often feels... There's a similar dynamic in England, and we could well realise the, the problematic state the game is the game is in way too late, or at least um, the football authorities could. And it's why I must say I've been so disappointed in 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 Sheffron and UEFA in this regard. Basically, there's, there's never been a greater space or a greater necessity for football leaders with true vision. So, given all that, we need a classic final, don't we? Final question to both of you. Do you think we're likely to get it? Uh, and if so, uh, who's going to win it? Oh, Seb. Yeah, France, Mark, I, I just want to add something to what Miguel says because it, it, really, it really resonated with me. Like, if, you, if we exist in a game where if we have a game around us where the ultimate ambition at the end of each season is for these teams um, to kind of be that, you know, to nullify the ambitions of our rivals, that's a really dangerous place. Like, I, I watched... Eintracht against Rangers in the Europa League final last week and it was just it was great like it was great drama I didn't really care who wins I have a little bit of a lean towards the German side because I, I live there and Eintracht a good story like if you're taking these kind of things away so instead of like Eintracht against Rangers I'm, I'm watching Manchester City against PSG or like it that's not really the football that I signed up for yeah but I'll get back to the point <laughs> <laughs> um I think we get a good final I think these teams are really well matched I think I think what I like about them is that it's a final that puts a lot of really, really good footballers on the same pitch. A good footballers in the kind of the classic sense, ball players, like footballers, ambition, flair, creativity. Like, and there's some great stories there. There's some really great stories. Sadio Mane potentially winning absolutely everything by the Premier League like in the same calendar year is an, an amazing story. Karen Benzema perhaps making his case even more solid for the Ballon d'Or. Like, it's just it's got everything that you want, and I've got a kind of I've got an emotional draw to that in a way that I wouldn't have to some of the things that Miguel described so eloquently a couple of minutes ago. So is it going to give you a reason to believe, Migs? I, I, I do think it'll be a good game. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Just I've done a big piece in the State of the Modern Champions League for, for today, Thursday morning. And it's, kind of, it's this almost contradiction of the Champions League where it's been so entertaining over the last few years. In fact, four of the highest scoring seasons since the Champions League's formation from the European Cup in 1992, four of the, the highest scoring seasons have come in the last six years. And we're talking about goal returns that we haven't really seen since the 1960s. So it's a golden age of Champions League in one sense. But also, all that entertainment is an antidote, an antidote to, and sort of a cause of the kind of sameness of the competition, where it's always the same teams involved. So there's actually just both a kind of a freshness and a staleness about it. And I would say so far this season, it's actually been the most entertaining Champions League since 2018-19, which was um, Liverpool Spurs in the final. And that season had everything, bar a good final. This season maybe has been brilliant, maybe not quite as much drama. So in, in that 2018-19 in that season, 
There were six second leg comebacks. This season has only been two, both of them, of course, from Real Madrid. But that season was lacking the final to match. Hopefully this, se- this season we do have the final match. And I'm quite optimistic about that, I have to say. And, and, and probably, I mean, given what we're talking about, may, it's, it's amazing to say this, given this is the final with more history than any other, where basically there's 19 European Cups involved. And, one of them, and Madrid have had 13, Liverpool have had six. There's never been so many European Cups represented in, in one final. And yet, despite that, despite that display of power, this is actually quite a relatively healthy final because Liverpool, even, even though their, their owners essentially, you know, the kind of the, 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 the venture capitalists, they're still a club run on relatively progressive grounds in that regard. Even though Madrid are run by Florentino Perez, they're still a member-owned club. And both of these are kind of, they're, they're trying to seek out ways to be defiant against this state against these state clubs, which is pretty much the best you can, the best you can offer in the modern game. So from that regard, and I suppose it's a this statement in itself is an indication of where football is. This is actually a relatively healthy final. Okay, one word answers, please, chaps. Uh, who wins? Seb. Liverpool. Liverpool. Mix. Yeah, Liverpool for me. Liverpool for me. Yeah, I see no reason to argue against that. I've actually got a hunch that this final might be one for the ages. You know, Real Madrid's progress to Paris has been thrillingly unpredictable, consistently uplifting. Uh, Liverpool, at times this season, have been a force of nature. If you look around, there have probably been inevitable signs of physical and mental decline in recent weeks, but their collective will is so, so strong, I take them to win probably by the odd goal in five. In the meantime... Thanks to Seb and Miguel for not just their insights today, but for throughout this season. Thanks, chaps. And thank you all for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.